Welcome to Undead Matter, a series of conversations about where life lies in the ever-turning matter of our universe. I'm Sophie J. Williamson. In this episode, Hong Kong-born artist Bo Choi speaks with Sayana Namsariva, an anthropologist from Bharatia, eastern Siberia, whose work focuses on the indigenous cosmologies of the people from her region. Together they consider how landscapes surrounding Lake Baikal, the deepest and oldest freshwater lake on the planet, influence worldviews. Siberia is a region. It's geographically very diverse. So you have mountains, you have permafrost, you have taiga, you have wonderful valleys, steep plains. So it's really, even within the Republic of Buryatia, there is a huge diversity in landscape. So that's why just think about the vastness and it's still an underpopulated area. And the traveling there, it's still difficult because there is no travel infrastructure. Siberia is one of the last resource untouched frontiers. The whole world is thinking about planting trees and Siberia contains around 20% of the world forests. It's also one of the lungs of the planet. Amazonia in South America it brings more attention because it's easier to travel there and to see just what is going on. But because Siberia, in Western understanding, it's still very remote, it's still terra incognita. So now people become more interested to see Siberia from a different perspective as a huge natural deposit, but as also a very unique spiritual landscape which has its own cosmology. Mm. How do you think that this immensity of nature has an impact on the nature of the people there? I wonder if like this vast amount of forest and empty land and the so being so close and wrapped around by the sky, like how does that impact the nature of the people? It depends from which perspective you are talking about local people, because Siberia, there are a lot of ethnic minorities living in Siberia. So we are probably talking about the regional identity, like uh, being a person from Siberia, for example. It always gives an image of a very strong, powerful, rough people mm. who know how to survive in this climate when it can be very cold and very hot because many people live still on hunting and fishing, so they know this kind of a special knowledge. Everything kind of presents itself it's much strong and very powerful. It's just hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of forest, and you feel these enormous distances, all these mountains covered with forest trees, the taiga, and of course you see there are a lot of animals there. And sometimes animals come closer to cities, to villages. The area of the Lake Baikal, because it's a kind of in the middle of the Eurasian continent. You have this kind of a big temperature difference between day and night. This is kind of part of the everyday life, being engaged with all these uh, nature forces. It's really fascinating, the readings you sent. There's a lot about Buryat cosmology and about how the spirit world for the Buryat Mongolians or for the indigenous Siberian community in general and how 
many spirits that reside in the mountain, spirits of uh, Mata spirit of the lake by cow, of the land, of water, of even sometimes animals. I suppose in that kind of cosmology, not only you're at one with nature, you are kind of under nature in a way. I remember in one of the readings, I find it really super interesting is how, I think it's a Humphrey reading that you sent on the role of mirrors in Mongolian shamanism. It was describing how do the beings in the realm of dead see us? They see us as these like little worms in the sunny world. I just find that like, <laughs> this is really interesting perspective shift. I mean, it's a quite metaphorical, of course. Mm, yeah, of course. Yes, but it's just trying to give understanding of a different value system, you see. Yeah, I wonder if you can introduce a bit more of this cosmology of the master of Lake Baikal. Yeah, so of course, when people are talking about this kind of very powerful nature spirits, like masters of the land, masters of the water, lakes and everything, they try to give some anthropomorphic features to them. So in this case, Baikal is a definitely very powerful, patriarchal old man. And because Baikal has more than 300 little rivers bringing water into the Baikal, so oral histories and legends, they present them as the children of Lake Baikal, you see? So all these little rivers who are bringing water and coming, flowing into the lake. And Selengaryu brings like 80% of the water to Lake Baikal. So this is kind of the eldest son or eldest daughter of this. But there is only one river which flows out of Lake Baikal. So this is Selinga. Oral histories depict the Selinga as a rebellious daughter who decided to run away from her father to marry another river whose name is Yenise, you know, the big powerful river in northern Siberia. So I think this is kind of a very interesting approach to present life of nature as a life of a human society. So I think that this kind of oral histories, they just explain in this very romantic and maybe humanized way the structure of the things around you. It's a beautiful legend. So to continue the story, when Angara River decided to run away from her father, so of course Lake Baikal spirit, he's called this Bairal Babe, like respectful old man. So he get furious and he didn't want her to run away and marry this river Yenisei. And so he threw the big stone towards Angara who was running away. And nowadays, just at the place where Selenga runs out from Lake Baikal, there is a huge stone just in the middle of the river. This landscape there is very much animated. Local people, they know their landscape very well. And of course, they know all oral histories, all kind of dangerous or good places. When you come to a place as a stranger, the first thing, according to the hospitality rules, you ask locals about their landscape and they kind of tell about it. So in, they introduce the landscape to strangers. Mm. Because, you know, there are some places where you should stop and do some offerings to the local spirit because sometimes they can be hostile to strangers sometimes. So you do certain rituals to be welcomed to the area as a stranger.
I was traveling with one of the local guy near one village. She said, oh, this is a road actually where sometimes you can see a shaman woman riding a horse. He said that she used to live there and she had a very tragic life. Something happened with her future husband. That's why she feels very envious when young future rides take this road. And that's why all locals will never bring bride using this road to that village. It shows that spirits are very tempered. They have their own personality. They have their own character. They have their own life story, let's say. They have different relations with different groups of people, and local people know it. And for example, usually they can just use this road without any hesitation, but when they bring bride to the village, they will never use this road, because they know that this woman spirit in particular is very envious to young women. According to local rituals, placenta of the child was buried in the place where this child was born. So it means that you have a special ties with the place because a part of your body is inside the earth. So it kind of builds these intimate connections. It's a very special ritual which actually knots you with a certain place mm. and you treat it as your own place, the place where you belong to. It doesn't matter the kind of the rights of the property in the present day capitalistic way to whom this land as a property belongs to. But because of the seasonal migrations, a child could be born at any of these places, like in a winter camp or in a summer camp. Usually when people talk about their homeland, they think about the village, about the region, mm. or maybe street or certain area where you was born. But in this case, placenta homeland just shows the exact place where your placenta of your mother and maybe umbilical cord is buried. So it kind of knots you with the certain place. Yeah. According to the local understanding, so people live certain life cycles. So you should end your life cycle always at the place oh, where you were born. At the, oh, yeah. So you go back to your placenta homeland. Yes, you should be around this place. To keep the strong ties with your placenta homeland, people visit this place once or twice a year, for example. In one of my articles, I describe these rituals that they usually take off the cloth and they roll on the earth and just lay down embracing the earth, just trying getting the strength and power from the earth into the body. So this is one of the kind of healing practices, you see. Wow, this is so fascinating. It goes back to the whole theme of relational ecology and how as humans, and maybe since the starting of agricultural society, that we become more sedentary and we become more fixed to the location. And then we become more anthropocentric and we are kind of the center of the universe. But in the more nomadic societies, you have a much more at-one relationship with the land. This is a literal combining yourself in the soil, in the land to become Yes, one. exactly. Because it's not only combining yourself with the soil, with the local dust and grass. It's also drinking water. They wash their hands. They wash their body kind of using the um, local uh, 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 kind of... Uh, or water, it's kind of purifying yourself also symbolically. So visiting your placenta homeland, there is a special term, tonto, you talk in Mongolian language. 
it brings lots of association for people about these local spirits, about your moral health, and about your duties and responsibilities towards the nature. Of course, because you have such an emotional attachment, so you will never overuse the resources of this place. You will never cut off more trees than you need. You will never pollute sources there. You will never kill wild animals more than you need for your survival needs. So I think it kind of gives you a very good example how people try to appreciate the nature. Yeah, absolutely. Which literally feeds them and keeps them strong and going. Because I live in different places, for me it's very important to go once in the two, three years to the placenta homeland. We still treat the place where our grandmother was born as our personal mm. holy place, let's say. And every time I go to visit my little village of my grandparents, we always go with some of my relatives to visit this placenta homeland of our grandmother. And I remember when she was still alive, she just introduced us to this place and she knew all this landscape as her five fingers. In all mythological kind of consciousness, you have different layers and structures and hierarchies of all the spirits. And I think that local people, they usually have lots of interesting stories to introduce to strangers or to younger generations about mm. different layers of the landscape. Local shamans told that this is a huge graveyard of ancient battlefields, oh, so they're wow. kind of a, filled with ghosts. You see, so in this case, yeah. you have a much more complicated understanding of the landscape. So they are not only good and bad spirits, not only protecting spirits or some strange and weird ongongs, as you remember the term in one of the articles. Ongongs, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But yeah. there are also some other spirits like ghosts who also can be maybe harmful. We see only things on the surface, while this kind of knowledge, they give you power to see underneath and to see differently. I remember once in my grandfather, we were just walking through the forest. After rain, you know, when the heavy flow of water sometimes can bring things outside and reveal things from inside. So we found a piece of arrow, this kind of metal, very sharp part of the arrow. And I thought, because I was fond of history, I was, so I said, oh, it's kind of interesting archaeological finding, so let's have it. Uh, I took it, and I was that time I was attending secondary school in Moscow. I brought it to my teacher of history, and he said, this is a kind of 13th, 14th century things. Then suddenly my grandfather became very sick. And according to the local tradition, you don't go only to doctor to find the reason yeah. for your sickness, but you also visit local shaman or local mm -hmm. MG, medical practitioner, Buddhist monk or shaman. So he went to see shaman and he said that actually you are keeping something which doesn't belong to your family, something wow. very old. And the shaman said, it's something sharp and metal. Whoa. So I brought this thing back to our family and we went to my grandfather exactly to that place where we found it and we put it back. 
it shows that sometimes yes. people are not allowed to take things they, which don't belong yeah. to, to them. You just uh, see that landscape consists of different many layers. So, for example, all resource companies who come to exploit the natural resources, they see the landscape on these resource yeah. local people. They see the whole depths of the landscape. And that's why I think they live in a... I don't like the word in the harmony, but kind of in the full respect to it. Mm. Can you expand on that? What your ideas are behind your usage of respect versus harmony? We were talking about the other spirits, yeah. the kind of non-human or other than human creatures. They also have their own subjectivity, something like that. Yeah. So in this case, people who understand it, they show respect and they treat them with respect. And they also expect they get their protection in return. So yeah. you see, it's a kind of a reciprocity, mutual reciprocity yeah. relations. Suddenly, this region, Siberia, became very popular with the Chinese tourists coming from big megapolis like Shanghai, Beijing. And what attracts them? Because city dwellers, they don't have experience of being in a forest, empty forest, just one-to-one, -one, because they used to live, kind of be always in a human society, you see, like always surrounded by people. But when they got into the forest and they don't see people and they see huge trees, different sounds, different air waves, everything. It's kind of overwhelming because suddenly they felt lost. And I think there is a need to be connected again with the nature. And that's why I think that there is a special kind of a tools to reconnect people with nature. There is a real need to be back to the roots, to experience the nature differently, not in the terms of um, exploiting it. But when they go there, it's just absolutely different feeling. So you just feel the power and you feel that you are just such a little minor and significant thing compared to all these things surrounding you. Could this be a new kind of more ecotourism in that you go to nature and experience the power of it, although only momentarily over that short period of, I don't know, like one week of being in nature? Yeah, because this anthropocentric world we're living mm. now, it kind of teaches us from our first steps in this world that we are strong creatures. Yes. Nature serves us. Yes. But when you have these moments of truth uh, during your ecological or during the visit to this very remote and sparsely populated regions, you understand that nature actually is more powerful than you. Yes. Yes. And it gives you kind of a different priorities in your life. Yeah. And it gives you kind of a different attitude. I can't say kind of less anthropocentric, but you become aware of something else happening around you, something more important, mm. something more significant maybe than just human life. Yeah, it's in one of the essays that I read about, is it the sack, that spirit? Yes, I mean, there are a variety of different spirits. Yeah, powerful mountain spirit. Yeah. Yes, powerful mountains, like river spirits, because... Local practitioners like shamans and Buddhist lamas, they usually know how to treat these spirits, how to 
pacify them mm. and yeah. how to be less harmful or be more supportive. And it's an interesting kind of a cosmological composition of the landscape. Yeah, I'm really drawn by how spirits have human subjectivities and spirits also crave bodily sensations. They want their bodily sensations to be evoked through worship, through incantations, through the delicious substance that Lama and the locals give for them to consume. And the difference is that of mortality. Humans are mortal, spirits are immortals, but they're invisible. But other than that, they have these human subjectivities and human body sensations. And I think that goes back to the idea of relational ecology and how even in the spirit world, in the cosmology, everything is intertwined. It's very important to have this kind of a transmission of knowledge between generations. Mm. And unfortunately, I can see that because most of the families nowadays, they kind of divided between city and countryside. So during these short summer holiday visits, children maybe cannot get this knowledge in a full amount, or maybe they're just losing these connections and knowledge about the homeland of their parents and grandparents. It is one of mm. kind of a very sad examples when your younger generation or your family become detached yeah. from all this kind of historical, mythological, spiritual legacy of the area, you see? Yeah, this is why I think hopefully within culture we can somehow have this revival of ancient wisdoms and indigenous wisdoms as our daily practice. Yeah, exactly. And I know that nowadays these spiritual practitioners, uh, we call them shamans or maybe even Buddhist lamas, they start publishing lots of things like little booklets and brochures about how we should behave, why this area deserves particular respect and so because of the uniqueness of the Lake Baikal, it's uh, forbidden, for example, to kill animals on the Baikal shore because it can cause anger of the lake. So you should not throw stone or sharp objects into the water because first of all, you think, okay, you should not throw bottles or any rubbish into Lake Baikal because it kind of harms people. No, it not only harms people, but it also brings harm to many creatures and species and everything which lives in this water. Five or seven years ago, a research submarine went deep into the Lake Baikal. You know that it's kind of one of the deepest lakes in the world. So the researchers were surprised that in this cold water, kind of hostile to living creatures, there were lots of life. So it gave the idea for researchers how life developed on Earth starting from all these microbes. Because at the very beginning, I mean, the climate on the Earth was quite difficult, hostile. Absolutely. I came across an image of a baby lion cub discovered around Lake Baikal, deep in the permafrost. And I think it's estimated to be maybe 28,000 years old. And the lion cub was preserved so well. You can see the whisker and the fur. It's incredible how much history and time and life, actually, is still within the 
Yeah, I mean, in a way, Termafrost and this climate of this area, it allows you to have this journey in time to see how mm. the world, the nature was maybe millions and millions years ago. Yeah, it's interesting because then I always think about this like notion of time and how when we're living on Earth, like as humans, we are able to see space really easily and we can navigate around space. But with time, it seems like we can only conceptualize time in a way through maybe events, maybe through sound, maybe through things, but we can't really grasp. And then we always have this like linear thinking of time that, you know, this happened, present and future. You know that across the Asian countries like China, Vietnam, Korea, there is a very strong notion of the power of the earth. Mm. And maybe you have heard about the so-called dragon vines. It's how the energy of the earth is channeled through the dragon wine. So it's a kind of blood system of the earth, you see? Mm, yes, in feng shui. In feng shui, it's also one of the kind of examples, very good example of this kind of respectful attitude to yes. the nature yeah. and to different elements of the nature, you know, like fire, yeah. water, earth, and so on. I think that this idea of the dragon vine, it's also very powerful. And in the Buddhism cosmology of the region, like in Siberia, there is also similar understanding of these powerful underwater rivers, mm. which symbolize this power. And other kind of spirits, they are in charge of all these undersurface water flows. So they're called nagas in Sanskrit. Nagas, kind of like snake. Nagas, uh, they're kind of, um, in the religious text, they're depicted as having an upper body is a human body, ah. and other parts is a kind of snake or yeah. reptiles. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, And I know yeah. that the cult of Nagas is reviving, it's getting very significant, and a couple of years ago, a special uh, Buddhist temple was erected, devoted to the Nagas, just on the Lake mm. Baikal, to also give people an idea that there are other powerful creatures around us. And the people becoming aware with the world is much more complicated, that it's not the only idea of money and of consumerism and just satisfying our needs, that there is also different value system. I'd like to perhaps go back a little bit on the topic of time, because I remember um, your colleague, uh, Carolyn Comfrey, in one of her papers saying that in the Buryat cosmology, there's no primordial time. Yes. The experience of time is more on history and more it's more human-centric, focused on an ancestry. Thinking about how all these findings of life and the deaths of late by cow, they seem like if the planet is destroyed, like they will be the only thing that is survived, for example. So there seems something that's beaming with future in the life forms in the depths of Lake Baikal. And then on the other hand, maybe a few hundred kilometers away, you have these creatures from 28,000 years ago buried deep inside the land. And then on top of this, the permafrost is melting. You mentioned about like the placenta burying in the earth and how people's emotions are so intertwined with the land. And I'm gonna kind of thinking, wow, then if the permafrost is melting now at an accelerating rate, it's not just the methane gas that is emitting, but it's also 
people's memories, people's emotions, like generations of blood and sweat. Where do these energies go? It's interesting to take into account that Lake Baikal area is a seismologically very active area, so there are lots of processes going underneath the Lake Baikal, and the lake is getting deeper because mm. tectonically this place is going to separate from each other. So according to these uh, kind of geological prognosis, I don't know in how many million years so it will separate and Lake Baikal will become an ocean. So it just shows that the landscape is still in constant transformation, mm. either in terms of changing temperature or melting as a thermofrost, but it's also changing shape because it's seismologically quite active. So there always is a kind of a pushes from beneath the earth. So it's a kind of little volcano eruption at the very bottom of the lake. That's why there are lots of things happening inside the, the depths of the lake. And what this scientific research expedition revealed, it showed that on the very depths of Lake Baikal, there is a very thick kind of a substance of the microbic life there. And it just shows that the complicity of the even water structure in the lake, well, you see. Mm. But at the same time, local people try to think in Lake Baikal in a different terms because they try to understand all these processes going around the lake, like earthquakes, or sometimes they have this kind of a natural gas coming from down of the lake. So all these things kind of let people think that it's very powerful object of the nature and that's why it needs to be treated with respect. I think there's so much crossover in terms of deities and deity worshipping between, I think, in my culture, which is Chinese culture. I grew up with the concept of reincarnation and karma. It's a concept that is very deeply rooted in us. I know there is a big Buddhist influence in Burret Mongols. Do you also think about? Yes. Yeah, so although Buddhism came to the area like five or six centuries ago, it's nicely combined with pre-Buddhist shamanic ideas. Mm. That's why when we are talking about the Mongolian Buddhism, it's a bit different from the original version of the Buddhism, for example, because of the very strong shamanic influence. So one of the biggest shaman uh, kind of spirits, they become spirits of the Buddhist pantheon. You see gods and goddesses. And at the same time, Buddhist deities, they have some shamanic features because they also become associated with certain masters of the earth. Mm. So, for example, if you travel to the mountainous area of the Buryatia to the north of the Lake Baikal, so there is a special place where people believe that a goddess called Saraswati uh, from Indian Pantheon, she was reincarnated in that area and her Mongolian mm. name is Yanjama. She is worshipped as a protector of artists, musicians, poets, as well as a fertility goddess, you see. But I also learn all these things when I travel because you can't think that you're already born with all this knowledge. You learn it when you travel, you learn it when you talk to local people. I also hope that in my writings I try to introduce even very little <laughs> part of the local cosmology and how it is a spiritual landscape.
the question of reincarnation and different spirits take care of different areas of your health or your one's day life or nature. I know that in my cultural understanding from the Taoist, more Taoist than Buddhist or Chinese folklore traditions, you can't reincarnate in a different realm. You know, you can be downgraded, but you can't be upgraded. You know? <laughs> the ongos in Mongolia, ongos. Ongons, yes. Ongons. Then they can shapeshift a little bit. And I think I just want to bring in also this uh, story from Patrick Atungana, a whaling captain from the Inupiat people from northern Alaska. He was saying something very interesting and also uh, resonate um, deeply with what you said earlier about the respect for nature and the, and the land. He was saying that when they hunt whales, they are very affected by uh, the international whale hunting quota. But from an indigenous person perspective, they hunt with respect, you know. They, they're in their view. The whales, they give themselves up to us. Yes. There's an island that they'll park there. And then if, in previous instances, the hunters had treated the whales with respect, then the spirits of the whale will let the tribe know that, okay, these hunters are good. Mm. You know, they have treated me with generosity and respect. They're good people. And then the whales know that, okay, these are good people. We'll give like one of us to them in our next station. So that's how they have this sustainable cycle of hunting. Yeah, so there's kind of regeneration and it also shows that all this hunting process is very much ritualized. Mm. And I think that this example you use is just one of the wonderful examples that people think about it, that they should not yeah. overuse the resources to regenerate in order to feed them next time, next yes. season. So it is again a yeah. question of the sustainable relations. Yeah, and then he also mentioned of how they pass on these wisdoms to the next generation. Going back to this topic of reincarnation, because they also believe that the spirits reincarnate. So the whale that your grandchildren will be eating perhaps will be a reincarnated spirit from the whale from before, same as the child would be a reincarnated spirit from the grandfather. So you have this genealogical way of thinking of passage. Yeah, it also kind of shows that interdependence is between generations. The similar attitude is among Buryat hunters, for example. Because animals, they, uh, uh, there are certain rituals. Because when you kill animal, you just ask forgiveness. That sorry, I kind of ended your life. But by eating your body, the flesh and meat, you will give life to my family, to my children mm. and everything. Among indigenous hunters, the hunting was a highly ritualized process. Yeah. For example, prehistoric people saw the first drawings of the animals in the caves. Yeah. They were animals which people hunted. And before yeah. they start hunting, they started talking. They became conversation with the animals they are going to kill next day. So they were already kind of uh, addressing themselves. So tomorrow we start. So this is the explanation why they were drawing animals. Because it was the beginning of the rituals, beginning of all this understanding to showing the spiritual connections with the animals you hunt after. Yeah, so it's almost like this notion of having permission and treating nature and things around your environment not as 
you know, you don't have a right to that, you know. I think this is something, this is a really big difference between the mindset between contemporary modern society, um, city dwellers. Yeah, so there's something kind of, there was a certain switch to different tone, let's say. So yeah. in this case, we have to tone back again our consciousness or understanding that the nature actually sustains us, that the nature gives us resources to keep our life. Yeah, and... There is a huge regenerative power of the earth. And I think this is important that the mindset shift as well of how instead of our kind of quite human-centric or um, modernist, yes. human-centric way of thinking about we have to find a solution to this problem. Mm -hmm. But maybe we just tune back, as you said, as you said, put it really nice, tune back a little bit of our consciousness and say, hang on a minute, we are one in nature Maybe we just kind of think less from our perspective and listen more to what the nature is telling us, yeah, what's happening, what the animals are telling us. Yeah, and you know that from the Buddhist religious perspective, for example, so this pandemic situation is also believed to be a form of the curse. It's very important just to have this moment to understand that nature, the landscape, is more powerful than we think. And when you travel to the area, you understand it and you feel it. This series of podcasts is produced by Undead Matter, initiated and convened by Sophie J. Williamson. For more information about the Undead Matter program, follow us on Instagram at undead underscore matter.